Well, during uh, the last few weeks, we have been uh, preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And today, we come to a fairly critical turning point in the Gospel where Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. And we know that the, the Gospel of Mark has been written to help us to understand more about the identity of this man, Jesus. Who is this man? That is the question that people keep asking over and over and over as we read through this Gospel. And so now we see Jesus starting to make his journey to Jerusalem. And we will move through chapters 8, 9, and 10 and ultimately lead us up to uh, Palm Sunday, which is where we pick up in Mark 11 with the triumphant entry of Jesus. But this section, chapters 8 through 10, they are bookended by a similar kind of miracle that Jesus performs. You see, we need to really go back and look at the passage that comes right before the one that Jack read just a moment ago. You see, we will find that this is one of Jesus' uh, healing miracles where he heals a man with blindness in Bethsaida. And then right before we get into chapter 11, Jesus will heal another man by the name of Bartimaeus. And so these, healing, these, these healings of blindness occur. And I think they, they form a theme for this section of Mark's Gospel. And the theme is this, is blindness. And what we will discover is there's really two types of blindness. There's physical blindness, where we can't see with, with our physical eyes, but there's also spiritual blindness. And we've been witnessing that too as we read through Mark, how some people seem to get it. Some people understand, they, they know who Jesus is, or at least they have an idea, they, they're sort of on the right track, and then there are others that are just way off of base. And so Jesus in this section is journeying with his disciples from Caesarea Philippi, which is the northernmost distance away from Jerusalem. And you see, that's the turning point where Jesus begins to turn and head south to Jerusalem. And as he makes that journey, he will help heal these disciples of their spiritual blindness, of not really recognizing Jesus for who he is. And so that leads us into the text we have uh, read just a moment ago. Because we know that once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, what's awaiting there? The cross. And that is where Jesus' true identity comes clearly into focus. So the healing of this man in Bethsaida is very important because Mark has placed this story right alongside of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. And it's for an important reason. So there's a juxtapositioning of different types of blindness happening. Physical and spiritual blindness. So let me go back up and read that earlier text. So they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes, 
and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So then he sent him away to his home saying, do not even go into the village. Now the great seminary professor, Ben Witherington, you probably are familiar with him, a seminary professor at Asbury, written a number of books on Paul and even wrote a commentary on this passage and the whole Gospel of Mark. And Ben calls this particular story a visible parable. A visible parable. What he means is the reason this miracle is placed here is because it illustrates what's about to happen next. This man receives his sight not all at once, but in degrees. There's a progression of this man seeing. He isn't completely healed the first time that Jesus touches him. So his healing is more of a progressive healing. And in a similar way, the disciples' spiritual blindness also is healed in degrees by progression. Their spiritual journey progresses throughout the entire Gospel of Mark and, and they gain a little more sight, a little more insight into who Jesus is as they move along and journey with Jesus. So these stories have purposefully been put beside each other to teach us how it is that we see how we see Jesus. For many of us, that sight comes as a journey of faith over many years. We gain more and more clarity. Now, let's look back at the story for a second. So, this physical man receives sight. And then, immediately after, the spiritually blind disciples, they do not understand who Jesus really is. But in this passage that Jack read, it seems as though Peter gets it. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now there have been many wrong answers given up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. There are some people that have said he's a madman, he's crazy. There are others that said he's demon-possessed. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Even Herod says that Jesus is Elijah raised from the dead. Wrong. Now, there are other people that give sort of half answers. They sort of get it. For instance, there are incomplete answers. Some say Jesus is a good teacher. He's a rabbi. There are some people who say, oh, that's, that's the carpenter. That's Mary and Joseph's son. Well, that's partly true. And then there are others that say, oh, he is, he is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's sent from God, but he's a prophet. And so there's all these answers given, but then Jesus moves eyeball to eyeball, knee to knee with his disciples, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, who's the star student, right? He's the best scout. He knows all the right answers. He knows the oaths and the mottos and all of that sort of thing. Peter says, oh, Jesus, you are the Christ. Christ is a Greek word that means anointed one. In the Old Testament, that word would be Messiah, the anointed one of God. That's who Peter says that he is. That is true. But yet Peter really doesn't fully understand what he's saying. Notice what happens immediately after Peter's confession. If you look down, starting with verse 31, Mark tells us this, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And three days later, rise again. And Mark says he spoke this plainly to them. And what does Peter do? The one, the star student, the one that just said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Peter takes Jesus aside. He pulls him off to the side and he rebuked him. But turning and seeing his disciples, what does Jesus do? Rebukes Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Both of these miracles, the man receiving sight, Jesus speaking plainly about who he is, both of these miracles happen by what comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Clarity comes from what proceeds from Jesus' lips. How does Jesus heal that blind man? He spits on him. Now, I don't know about you, but spitting is never an acceptable practice. Right? Guys, no spitting, right? We've taught that from an early age, but we do it anyway, you know, kind of when nobody's watching. But never spit on a person. Well, you know, there's another spitting that happens in Mark. It comes around the 15th chapter when the soldiers, they have arrested Jesus and they're preparing Him for crucifixion. They strip His clothes and they put a robe on Him and they make fun of Him and call Him a wannabe king and they beat Him. And Mark tells us something else that they do. What do they do? They spit on him. Spitting is an unacceptable practice except when it comes out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus heals the blind man by spitting on his eyes and then laying hands on him. Y'all, this little detail has always intrigued me. I mean, why does Jesus do it this way? Well, Mark is further driving home a point for us. The point is this. 
Everything that proceeds out of the lips of Jesus is holy. And it is good. His speaking, his healing, whether he does it with a word or with just the very authority of just two words, be still, be calm, still, calm. Great miracles are performed. Mark wants us to see this. But notice how following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, how Jesus immediately starts talking about what is going to happen when they finally get to Jerusalem. Will he come into the the city to overthrow the Roman oppression? Will Jesus make his way to Herod's praetorium and, and remove Herod from office and take over his seat as king of the Jews? No. What will happen? Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples. His words were spoken in order to bring further clarity about who he is and the nature of what it means for him to be the Messiah. He begins to teach them that when they get to Jerusalem, he is going to suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the elders and scribes. He will be killed and in three days rise again. Now, earlier, Peter gives a very good answer about who Jesus is. And Jesus, in essence, tells Peter, you are right, but don't tell anyone yet. Why does he say that? Because they don't yet fully get it. You can almost see Peter puff his chest out when Jesus says, yep, but don't tell anybody yet, Peter. You see, he's given a right answer. But Jesus doesn't want them telling anyone until they have the full picture in view. And soon, Jesus starts to lay out his mission about what it means to be the Messiah, but, but Peter doesn't like what he's hearing. What does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside and he says, no way, Jesus. No way is this going to happen to you. You've got it all wrong, Jesus. This is not what's supposed to happen to the Messiah. Suffering, rejection, death, that's not part of the story. That's not part of your story, Jesus. You see, in terms of common sense values, Peter's not wrong. It is unthinkable that a just man would be killed by unjust men. That's unthinkable. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You know, he doesn't say, Peter, be quiet, you're acting like Satan. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Satan has already appeared in the story. Back in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And what does the devil try to do 
when Jesus is in the wilderness, but to get him to go a different way other than the cross. And so in this way, Peter is doing exactly what Satan has done. Jesus, surely there's another way. You, there's no way you can go to the cross. That's not what is supposed to happen. Why does Peter do that? The way of the cross is directly opposed to our way of thinking. We think there's got to be another way. There just has to be. You see, Peter believes that if we can just get the right person in charge at the levels of institutional power, then all of our problems are going to be solved. If we just elect the right leader and put them in the office, then the world will be better. You see, that's the way we think. But Jesus wasn't running for that office. He had his eyes set someplace else. Where? The cross. Why? The deepest need of our souls is to be reconciled to God. That's the deepest longing we have. Is to be right with God. And y'all, we will go all sorts of directions to try to make that right. We'll try to be good enough. We'll try to earn God's love. We'll try to go to church and be religious and do all the right things and believe all the right things. But unless it includes the cross, the way of the cross, the way of humility, the way of faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, then it's the wrong way. You see, everything that is good and beautiful and redemptive flows out from the cross to the world. And here's the relevance for us today. We think there's got to be another way. But the only way to salvation is through the sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross. The cross is the only way. It was the Apostle Paul who says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the, world, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And later in his letter to the Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, for by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Dottie Rambo, who is a great uh, gospel hymn writer, wrote a song called, I Will Glory in the Cross. And here are the words. I boast not of works, 
nor tell of good deeds. For not have I done to merit His grace. All glory and praise shall rest upon Him, so willing to die in my place. So I will glory in the cross, in the cross, lest His suffering all be in vain. And I will weep no more for the cross that He bore. I will glory in the cross. And then this verse, she says, My trophies and crowns, my robe stained with sin, was all that I had to lay at His feet. Unworthy to eat at the table of life, till love made provision for me. I will glory in the cross, in the cross, lest His suffering all be in vain. I will weep no more for the cross that He bore. I will glory in the cross. Where's our glory? Where's our hope? It's in the cross. Everything good in my life flows from that cross. And so we come to the table of the Lord this morning as a way to give thanks for all that the Lord has done for us and will do in our lives because of His death and His resurrection. Because of His redeeming love that have been displayed so beautifully for us in the cross.